This episode of The Moment is sponsored by Braintree. If you're working on a mobile app and searching for simple payment solutions, check out Braintree. With one simple integration, you can offer your customers every way to pay, period. To learn more and for your first 50,000 in transactions, fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com slash moment. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I want to say a couple of things before the show starts. One, thank you for all the reviews uh, and ratings on iTunes. It, it means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. The one thing uh, that listeners of a podcast can do if they dig it is to share it with their friends. So find somebody to tell about the show if you like it. Tweet about it or uh, go on Facebook or tell a friend. And if you don't like it, I'm really sorry. Um, I'll try to do better. Um, but also maybe then you don't have to tell people about the show. Just kind of turn it off and go listen to something else. Culture Gap Fest is good. You probably like that if you're a slate person. So go do that one. But if you like the show, help out. Today's guest is David Lipsky. David uh, is, Jesse Eisenberg plays David in the new movie, End of the Tour. And we talk about the book that inspired End of the Tour uh, and the movie a lot. And I never say the name of the movie. I just say the book's title over and over. So here in this intro, I'm not going to say the book's title. I'm just going to say End of the Tour is the movie that we talk about a lot. And, uh, this becomes a conversation because Lipsky is a really good um, interrogator too. And so I hope you'll forgive the fact that he and I end up talking a lot. Uh, I think he says a ton of really interesting stuff. And I was very open and uh, I think revealed a lot about what his life was like then, what he was feeling, how he feels now. And I, I also think there's a ton in there in between the things that he said that I found fascinating. Um, let me just say there are spoilers uh, about both the book and the movie in the podcast. And uh, there is a bonus segment at the end of the podcast uh, after the outro music. Lipsky, as he was getting up, was like, you know, by the way, I had some moments I didn't talk about and I, w- I knew they'd be good. So I was like, let's turn back on the recorder. And we threw them at the end. So there's bonus stuff at the end. I guess we could have just chucked the music on at the end and then it wouldn't feel like bonus stuff. But we try to give extra value and show it. So it's bonus material. All right, here's the show. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is David Lipsky, who is the author of a couple of books. The one that is in the news right now is, although, of course, uh, you end up becoming yourself, which is also a feature film that came out on Friday. Um, And the film is about a few days that David spent with David Foster Wallace, and it's largely based on transcripts of a conversation that David and David had with one another. Uh, Lipsky published his book in the shadow of Wallace's death. And um, I'll say right at the top, Lipsky and I are friends because we're friends on social media and we've met a few times. But more important than that um, is that uh, he's somebody uh, I like a great deal. And whenever I see him, I'm excited about uh, having the chance to talk to him. So uh, David Lipsky, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure being here, although I think that I'm going to let down your listeners because I will not be as exciting as you just said I would be. You put the mic closer so they, they can at least hear your boring, <laughs> how boring you are, okay. great, great, uh, great. really uh, up close and, and, and personal. Um, sure. No, there's man, a, I mean, a, I, wait, there's a great line uh, in the book when, uh, when David is giving a reading at the Hungry Mind in Minneapolis, and he said, is this okay? Am I, like, fillating the microphone? So I'll try to fillet this. I was very um, uh, pleased that uh, you got the saliva stuff in the movie. That was great. I, I was glad because I, I got to meet him twice. Yeah. And both times he, he mentioned the saliva. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, that's very, very cool. Yeah, and they, they had um, uh, Jesse makes Jason make the noise he will make without the artificial spit. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. Right into the yeah. thing, which I, I saw Amy and I, my wife and I went um, along with uh, someone who's critical of the film, Glenn Kenny, to uh, see David speak um, at a Barnes & Noble. And the first thing he did when he came out was the whole dance about the saliva. And I did feel like <laughs> that pointed to a certain kind of accuracy in the film that uh, Ponsolt, the director, James Ponsolt, I think is a very talented guy, had. Me too. That, uh, and did, did, so do you feel, I mean, I have a whole bunch of questions about this, but do you feel that by and large, James Ponsolt and Margolis, the screenwriter, Margolis? Margolis. Got it right? Yeah, I think there's a certain kind of gravity. I don't just mean being serious, but a different kind of, the other kind of gravity that's keeping you and I sitting right now. There's a certain kind of gravity that's caused by love, and it makes you want to pull things and have as many things stick to your movie as possible. And getting getting things like, like the artificial spit in that scene, or one of the things I loved was that on David's, uh, on David's refrigerator in his Illinois house, there's a, there's a refrigerator magnet for the Whataburger uh, company, and the Whataburger Open is the most important tennis match in Infinite Jest. And it's that kind of love that you see throughout the movie. Right, and so you feel it's not only faithful to your book, but but faithful to to like the spirit of Wallace. It's 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 a it's a it's a project that was made by four people that love Wallace's work, and that wanted to keep an idea of what he was like, what the man was like who wrote that work, and that in the uh, in the aftermath of someone who takes their own life, you might come to think that someone's work is always going to be a down, right? And the reason that I started writing this book, and the reason why I wrote the piece in Rolling Stone, was to say. He's just as alive as a person as he is when he's doing this writing. And he also is not the way you imagine a writer. He's not preppy the way you imagine John Updike, or he's not a university person uh, the way you might imagine uh, you know, John Barth or Laurie Moore. But of course, the movie is as much about you and as your book is. And you said that, that movable feast... The, I, I just mentioned that um, one of the one of the most sort of cliche uh, and embarrassing things I I ever did in my life is uh, I saved the book A Movable Feast, which is Hemingway's uh, book about becoming Hemingway while living in the left bank of Paris. Uh, I saved reading that until I was in Paris once and I could read it there. And it's a, it's terrible, except doing it is one of the best things you could ever do in your entire life. <laughs> like it's worth saving whatever money you have to, to go to Paris and sit in the cafes that are still there and order uh, coffee exactly the way he did in America and, and then drink it and read that book, which, which I did. Now, why did you want to do that? I'm curious. What, what motivated you to want to go to those cafes? Well, why did you say, I'll answer that, but why did you say that uh, your book was sort of inspired by a movable feast. Because I had, uh, like, it was funny, I was, I was reading a lot about Quentin Tarantino recently because I had loved his uh, his war movie and I had loved uh, his movie about slavery. At, uh, Jane I Gunchen. love Bastards so yeah, much. Yeah, great, right? And so I started reading about him and it was fascinating to see him, do you know how it says in his movies, like the third movie by Quentin Tarantino, the fourth movie? And the reason why is that he has, like any person who wants to get into a field and knows you can study the field, he had studied the lives of directors and he had a sense of what a second movie should be like, what a third movie should be like, what should be changed by the fourth movie. And I was fascinated to see that a director would do that because every writer I know, they try to pace themselves based on how they see other writers, you know, writing first books, second books, when they get married, when they might think that they should be in a different marriage, which, you know, Hemingway right. <laughs> had a number of those moments. Like that book you're mentioning is a huge tribute to his first wife, to Hadley, right? Um, so, coming up, one of the fun things, one of the fun things about talking to David when uh, when we were traveling was that he had that same wealth of information, like what Amos's first book was like, right, or what Pynchon's first book was like. 
And one of the hard things for me when I was trying to figure out what to expect, if you want to try to be a writer, how do, you, how do you find out what your sound is? How do you try to get your stuff published? How do you work with an editor? And the only book you could turn to for that was Movable Feast, which is talking about the literary world of 1925. So some of the pattern, but maybe the phone numbers wouldn't work anymore. And what I saw with this book was that it gave you an incredible sense, because when David's telling his story, sure, yeah, he's telling you the story of how you become a writer funny, in the 90s. funny. We were talking before the mic, Sean, about my favorite current living writer, Murakami. And of course, uh, what I talk about when I talk about running is all is his version of Movable Feast. Exactly, with, with the running sideline. Uh, yeah, but the running, which is legit, it, it serves in, you know, but, but, but interesting, there's an interesting article this week, um, because you're, in the way you're talking now about Quentin and about um, this Dave and about Hemingway, I think is leaving out something I know you're aware of, which is these things are not just primers. They're instruments of self, self-mythology and self-mythologizing, right? I mean, that's part of... Um, it's not just a primer. It's more like travel writing about, about your career. Do you know what I mean? Like, here's what you can expect. You'll see different things, but here's more or less the things you might want to stop in. And there was nothing there was nothing like that for coming up in the time of computers and coming up in a time of, of books fighting against movies and fighting against cable TV. And one of the great things I found when I was putting this book together was there was that whole thing. There was David talking about he has an advance, not a huge advance. He knows his book is going to be huge. How do you make it last for three years? And so he gets that that tiny apartment in Syracuse and writes the whole book there. Well, and 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 it, it, it also the book in a certain way and the movie. You know, I loved that when he talked about his agent and uh, editor. Bonnie Adele, great, great. Right, editor. of course. And you you guys made it a point to put in the movie him saying they're good people. Yes. But they're... and They have a set of agendas that differ from mine. Which is interesting because, you know, if you look at what Franzen's writing about Wallace, and I'm just wondering how you sort of um, navigated for yourself this question of St. David and and taking on that idea, but also in part, even by your framing, it's the best conversation you ever had. And, and, and in the book, I think even more than in the movie your adoration for him. Um, because I, you and I met right after Wallace died, shortly after Wallace died. And, and I saw then that it was a tremendous loss for you, even though you didn't, hadn't kept up a, a relationship with him. So how do you square your sense of him with, with the people who knew him so intimately with Mary Carr and Franzen and, and Glenn and all these other people? I didn't know him, right? I spent five days with him in a professional capacity. One of the nice things about this as a book and as a movie is we know this is, since every word in the book is word he said with the the tape recorder on, and then almost all of his dialogue in the movie is from this book, we know it's stuff he was exactly comfortable with hearing strangers know about his life. And we know that what what his aim was, he wanted to help people know who he was so it would sell books. And so all those things make me kind of, those made me happy about doing the book this way. And it was kind of hard to convince publishers to let me do the book this way because they had wanted me to do like a conventional biography, like <laughs> tell me what you guessed he was thinking or summarize him in high school. And I remember early in the book, and it's, it's one of the first scenes in the movie too, he says the idea of someone else controlling the image of him that's coming across makes him incredibly uncomfortable. And so I thought, look, here's a chance to tell people how this great writer became this great writer and to do it in a way which would just be what he wanted you to know. That was very exciting to me. That Franzen thing that you bring up and about St. Dave, there are a bunch of interesting things about that. David was trying to live well 
if you're very, very smart, you won't just try to write well. You will think, hey, I have incredibly high standards. I'm just speculating, obviously. I have incredibly high standards at my, at my keyboard, and I would like to try to improve the way I live as well. Um, I think for people who don't try to do that or who just try to keep that creativity or that or that um, that uncompromisingly high standard they only apply it to their writing, I think it may seem kind of odd. I think when Franzen writes about uh, David, um, and he spoke about him with me after David died with great warmth, some of the stuff that he writes about him makes me kind of uncomfortable. What does that mean? He talks about, he wrote in The New Yorker an essay there. He said that, um, that he thought that, that David's suicide, aside from which many people close to him and uh, doctors who I spoke with when I was writing this book, see as a very standard story for depressives, which is you find an agent that works. And then as this head of pharmacology at Harvard Med told me, nobody likes to take drugs. I don't like taking agents myself, is what he said. And so you think, okay, I feel fine. I'm going to stop taking it. And the problem can be that when you cease taking a successful agent, new ones won't work. And then the awful part is the old one won't work either. Which right. And then you're there. left in that and the state that David describes in the book and in the movie uh, where the fi- you, know, you have to jump out of the building. Yeah. Right, but but Franzen's point was slightly different. Or uh, um, I how think, do you remember Franzen's point? Well, you said you have an issue with it, so I think you should you should describe it. I, I've read the piece m- multiple times, so we can talk about it once. But yeah. how do you? He seemed to suggest that there was something he saw himself. Remember, he and Fra- he, he and Wallace are both great writers, and um, as he would be the first to say, he he learned a great deal from Wallace, and I'm sure that Wallace learned a great deal from Franzen. And too, Franzen is a great writer. Um, I can't think. After Infinite Jest, I can't think of a better novel to give someone than The Corrections. And his portrait of a character like David in Freedom is unbelievably strong. Um, But I think he saw, it may be that he is so competitive that he would see someone's gestures of friendship as a kind of refined competition. And he seemed to perceive, on some level, if I may have misread that New Yorker piece, he seemed to perceive it as a way to cement his reputation. Oh, I read it slightly differently. I thought that he was saying... I think that part of his piece was like a, a refutation of the thing Wallace says in, in your book about why he would dumb it down, right? In, in, in what Wallace says about why he dumb, would dumb it down uh, in the movie is uh, because I don't want to w- dumb himself down, right? Because you ask him in the movie uh-huh. why and in the book, and he says, because um, I don't want to walk in the room thinking I'm smart. How am I going to learn anything if I walk in the room thinking I'm smarter yeah. than you? Yeah. But John, it seems to me that when in Franzen, he wrote two pieces in the New Yorker about him, right? And the second piece, the long one. The long one. He, right, when he talks about going to the island yeah. and everything, you know, Franzen's on the island and he's talking, thinking about Wallace. Uh, I, what I remember him talking about is, is uh, that he felt that was a pose, a, a, a position of superiority, which you give Wallace the last word um, in about. Like you kind of pose the question and give him the last word. Uh, and let me say, he gave him the last word because we were talking and the, the, uh, the movie does a very good job with this. He just turned the tape recorder off. He didn't want to talk anymore. So he literally takes the last word. But one of the things that Franzen did in that essay, and it's very clever because Franzen's a really intelligent writer, the story is about him visiting the island that Robinson Crusoe is based on. And he's saying that, and he's saying that David's writing can often be solipsistic, can just be internally reflecting, right, or internally reflected. And so he leaves that island reading, I think, Richardson, who is a much more social novelist. And I thought that was a way of using an entrenching tool and tapping down dirt on the work of the person who's done the best writing of the last three decades. That's an interesting... Re- yeah, I felt it was a personal, like... It was like... One, was tra- I felt like he was actually trying to say, this person is three-dimensional. 
I feel like Franzen was actually lifting Wallace up as a writer, but um, but trying to say a human being wrote these books. I, I, I didn't. In, I thought the piece was incredibly well written. It made me angry, but I felt like he was saying something else. But I'm interested in your I'll your say one more thing ahead. about that. Yeah. Just that a lot of people said, and I thought it was very right that when you love someone, you've known them very well. I didn't know David except for these five days. That when they take themselves away from you, there can be a lot of anger in the love afterwards. And I think that piece. Sure. Oh, you feel that. the love and you yeah. feel the rage. Yeah. Like why did this guy, who was my only peer in a certain exactly. way, you could tell Franz and Felt Wallace was his only thing to measure himself, his only rival and friend, the only thing he could measure himself against. But I mean, I have to ask, and I haven't heard anybody ask you this question, um, knowing you a bit, looking at you, um, at, at your own career, you know, you're, when you were very young, you were picked by Raymond Carver to be included in this uh, book. You were precocious and recognized best American short stories at how old were you? 20? 20. And I thought of two things, one of which I've mentioned on this podcast before. There's this great story, uh, that the greatest golf coach ever, was probably this guy named Harvey Penick who wrote an incredible book called The Little Red Book that was a lifetime of uh, learning. He, this guy, Penick, uh, taught two of the Tom Kite and Ben Crenshaw both won major championships, and he taught both of them. But Penick was going to be... Wait, hold on, just like, it's not in the movie, but it's in the book. David's talking about watching TV in Minneapolis, and he says he's watching old golf footage of like Crenshaw and Nicholas. Uh, very straight backs, very rigid haircuts. That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> well, Penick was from uh, Austin and a very rigid back, all that stuff. Yeah. And late in, in his life, in fact, I think it might have been collected after he died, um, were these incredible this in- incredible journal that stretched into three different books about how he thought about golf and life. And it's an amazing book. Um, the first one in particular. But he tells a story about wanting to be a golf pro, a professional on the tour. And he was walking the range and he heard a sound. And it was a sound unlike any he'd heard. And it was Sam Sneed hitting a golf ball. And he said the ball exploded in such a way that he kind of put his own golf clubs away (laughs) and decided to teach. And I I have to ask, and I I also thought about, you know, um, Govinda and Siddhartha. You know, because... uh, these are searchers uh, along a similar path, but ultimately Siddhartha finds the thing they were both looking for by not looking for it and is able to communicate it only through a kiss um, to hmm. Govinda, who then has for that brief moment the true insight, but also understands he's not going to be Siddhartha. And a he's fine not, kiss. He's not the Buddha. Yes. <laughs> and so I have to ask, you know, you haven't published any fiction. You're a very successful writer and a successful person, but you haven't published fiction since you met Wallace. And I haven't heard anyone ask you this question, so I have to ask it. I mean, was it like seeing Sam Snead hit the golf ball? No, because um, for writers, I, I was thinking because I was very involved in uh, in reading about Quentin and watching videos of Quentin talking to Robert on YouTube. And Robert is really fascinated. He knows how good Quentin is. And uh, Wait, who's Robert, Robert Rodriguez? Rodriguez? Yeah. yeah. Um, see, that's why the first name thing is no, charming. I, in, in my, I have greatest. to say the defense of, of Quentin, first of all, he's the only Quentin. Who does this? Unless you want to talk about the two Quentins in Faulkner, but also, um, right? There are two Quentins in Faulkner. Yeah. But but also, Compton, yeah. Right? Aren't there? I know. I know. Compton. I'm trying to maybe find. Maybe there's the only one. one. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Was, wait. Who are the two characters with the same name in in uh, in Sound and the Fury? Right. There are two characters that have the same name. I think. I could be wrong, revealing myself as somebody who. There's there's Ben. There's Caddy, who's my heart's darling. Yeah. Right. There's um there's the woman who works for the family. Uh, there's Benji. I don't. I'm not sure there are two Quentins. Okay. But like I was on an airplane last night and I was saying, because I was very excited to be talking to you, and I was saying I was going to be on the show. 
And I was talking to a, a great guy from Miramax who I don't think knows you socially. Yeah. But he said, yeah, I love Brian's work. It's just standard. It's standard across your industry. But I was going to say, but also I do know, I mean, I've written about Quentin yeah. and more than once and I know him. And so that's my own. No, defense. no, this is, this is just I think it's rude to call uh, Tarantino somebody that you know in a way. Oh, I'm, totally I'm glad to call Wallace Wallace. Although in in the um, in the literary world, everyone's called by their last name. Like, have you seen? Have you read the new Updike? You wouldn't say have you For read sure. the new John. But okay. But the question I was asking is when you. Oh yeah, no, what, of course. So you I haven't to, published yeah. any fiction yeah. since you met Wallace. Okay, so um, it's different. Like it's it's more that there's a standard being set, and it's more when a good writer comes along, it raises it it expands the possibilities of what you can write. It doesn't diminish them. Do you know what I mean? He's showing you there are different there there are different speeds you can write at. You can write scenes much faster than you thought, or you can make you can cut them right. You can cut in and out of a scene much more quickly. Um, he's telling you a new he's telling you a new way to do certain kinds of jokes, um, and that's what was fun listening to Rodriguez interview uh, Tarantino on his show. He has a. He has his own network now that he's doing, and it's a great interview, but he also is showing footage of them over the years and Tarantino reading stuff to him and him being very excited. I remembered from that when, when Franzen and I were talking about Wallace, I asked, because a lot of people I know who come out of the workshop system, they will send stuff back and forth to each other. Um, this could be a long answer. Do you want a long version of this answer? Because it will, it will involve a Hemingway anecdote. Yeah, I want the whole thing. Man. Okay, is it going to be Hemingway yeah. and, and Fitzgerald driving together? Okay, <laughs> they did actually. There's a scene yes, like that. Yes, I like, know. And this actually is when they're both home at their. Uh, I think I think Hemingway used a stand-up desk the way Nabokov did, but this is Hemingway has done a story and he sends it to Fitzgerald, which is what they did, right? He sent them. He's not the most grateful. Not the most grateful person, Hemingway. He sent Fitzgerald the copy of the first finished draft of uh, Sun Also Rises. Yeah, and uh, Fitzgerald has a lot of good edits, and he also said, "Here's a big edit. Cut that first mean chapter where you're making fun of all the characters." Of before we meet them. And having a thought it was a good idea. And then he sent a, a letter to Max Perkins, their joint editor, saying, I want to cut that first chapter. Scott agrees. <laughs> Which uh, is, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, oh, and let me just say, because you brought that up, Max Perkins, uh, th that book by A. Scott Berg ruined uh, the idea of editors. The same way that Lloyd Dobler, according to Chuck Klosterman, um, ruined any like young man's chance of actually impressing a young woman because nobody <laughs> could live up to Lloyd Dobler. No editor can live up to A. Scott Berg's vision of Max Perkins yeah. in that book. Uh, that it's he, very he funny. Wrote about. Hemingway, Hemingway, Hemingway could be uncharitable to anybody. Hemingway said Max was Max with an idiot wife and five daughters. <laughs> That's <laughs> fantastic. Unbelievably uncharitable person. Uh, but um, no, I, I want to go to your answer, yeah. but I want to tell the story about yes. about people sharing stuff with them, and it goes to uh, how writers connect with each other sometimes. Um, so Fitzgerald and Hemingway were people who would send stuff back and forth to each other. And Hemingway had written the story that becomes 50 Grand. I think it's in, uh, I think it's in Men Without Women. And it had a great opening. I'm going to get the names wrong. But it had a wonderful little one-paragraph story. And the story was uh, the, its dialogue. And this guy is saying, you know, uh, McGinty, he's a, he's a great boxer. He's a smart boxer. The whole time he's in the ring, he's thinking. And the whole time he's thinking, I'm hitting him. <laughs> <laughs> and then the story begins as we know it from there, right? Um, he sent it to Fitzgerald, and Fitzgerald said, this is an incredible story. It's like your best boxing story, but you got to cut that opening because that's an old chestnut. Everyone knows that joke. And so Hemingway yanked it, published it, and then he found out that it was just a weird coincidence. They both knew the same boxing coach at Princeton, and he had told them both the story. No one else knew that story, and he was very angry at Fitzgerald sure. for making him lose that gag, but didn't put it back as a way to keep sulking in his collected stories. Okay, so that was how they dealt. They, they would send stuff back and forth. Um, now, before I go to the Franz and Wallace way of doing that, a uh, quick story from The Simpsons. Patty and Selma are the twin sisters of Marge Bouvier, who is Homer Simpson's wife. 
Um, Patty, I believe, is marrying Troy McClure, who is a, a former actor in like bad sci-fi who now does infomercials. And she's very excited, and there's a big wedding, and uh, Patty looks really wonderful. And Selma's been her maid of honor, and before she leaves in the just-married car with the tin cans, she walks over to her sister and says, just say the thing that you know I want you to say. And Selma says, I'm dying of jealousy. <laughs> um, and their sisters, they love each other, right? But that is also a response. So uh, Franzen told me that when he sent the corrections to Wallace, and, and Franzen, I'm sure, knew that it's a, it's a work that really benefited from a close reading of Wallace, because a new writer and a great writer will show you new ways of doing things, not just new vocabulary words, but also new ways of looking at character and new ways of sending characters into scenes. Um, when he, you know, and he said they didn't normally send things that weren't completed, but when you were done, you would send stuff. Um, and Wallace said, okay, there's two answers. As your friend, I'm so impressed. I'm thrilled for you. You did this great thing. You pulled it off. I couldn't be more happy. And as a fellow writer and as a competitor, you bastard. Right. And he said that was, you know, he wanted to hear both things. So that is how you respond to a new writer. Now, in my own case... Um, but and, your response seems to have been to shut it down. Yeah, and it was funny. That was a card... When you're, when you're fictionalizing things, that was they wanted to have a card at the end. And <laughs> they wanted to have that card. Yeah, David Lipsky never, wrote, wrote, again, never yeah. wrote fiction again. Well, it's, yeah. it is the question yeah. raised by, it's among the questions raised, and I haven't seen you speak to it. So why'd you stop writing fiction? So, but, but this is just a, sort of a funny thing about how marketing works. Um, I said, don't say that. Uh, so then we had some other cards, and then we went with no card, which was the best thing, right? Why'd but, you say don't say that? Well, because it's inaccurate. Um, for one thing, my sense of the difference between fiction and nonfiction isn't the same as it was when I first came out of uh, graduate school in 1988. Um, but just, just to say about how marketing does work, when you have a good idea of a way to position a movie, you will find a way to say it. So that notion then appeared in a big Los Angeles Times piece that was team, team interviewing the principals on the movie. And it was a parenthesis in the voice of the newspaper. Ironically, Lipsky, a, a decorated fiction writer, never wrote fiction again after this time. Um, just, it's just circumstance right after, uh, you know, after I'd reported this piece with David, I got sent on a different story right when I came home. And then when I came back from that, I ended up, uh, in a comic way, uh, by, by, a, um, by a, a way to knock out of doing, as a way to get out of the, doing a story about the military academy. I ended up spending four years at the military academy. Uh, and I, I will say, I love the book that you wrote. What's the title of which? It's absolutely is, um, American. Absolutely American. Yeah. You know, as you know. Because um, I wrote your fan letter about yeah. it. I mean, I love the book. It's the. It really does paint an unbelievable picture of um, sort of anyone who has preconceptions uh, where they look down upon these people uh, who go serve or who think, well, like New York liberals could start to think of, of which I, I am one of those people. And Me your too. book does an incredibly human, uh, an incredible job of um, making uh, incredibly human these people. And and um, I, so I loved it. It's a great book. An important book, but it's not fiction. But I saw it as like when I sat down with the four years of information about the, those those women and men who I'd followed. I remember that I'd always said when I taught, you know, if you're a writer, you can make anything into a story. And I remember thinking that was like like a mirror looking back at me and like accused her like now you have to make this into a story. Like it's a right. Book. And so you found the person trying yeah. to pass the physical. I mean, the exactly. Exactly. And about, yeah. I haven't read the book since yeah. it came out, and yeah. I can tell you. <laughs> many many instances from the book. I understand yeah. what you were able to achieve there. 
And but, so that's a book. And the second, okay, so second thing, then when that was done, right, uh, went out to Hollywood to work on it. Um, then when I came back, I started uh, another project. And it was because I had written well-received books. Um, I had a large contract for another nonfiction book and my next novel, which I had been working on in the background throughout this period. And then when David died in 2008, uh, I had to stop working on that project to write this book. And then when this book was over, there was a political issue that was very important to me. And so that other project, which I had to stop, I stopped to pick up. So it seems more like like that would be an extremely long title card at the end of a movie. Right. But, but to me, um, it does dance a little bit around the question. And, and the reason I, I'm, I'm asking is because I'm fascinated by genius. I've always been fascinated by genius and by the gulf between, uh, for instance, me and genius. And I wait, wait, do you think that's a very large gulf? Of course. Yeah, I always have. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a large gulf. And I'm not saying that to, uh, you know, yeah, it's a large gulf, so right? Who, so do you think of as a genius in your field? PTA is a genius, right? Uh, Wes Anderson is a genius. Um, because they make singular work that could only be uh, identified do, as do you think who, they, who they are. Do you think they would be like, do you think they would enjoy being called the genius? Because I remember, and it's no. in... It's, it, it's, in, um, it's in the magazine version of this book, is that Mark Costello, who was, uh, David had two great friends when I was like, they're both writers. Uh, first half of his life, it's Mark Costello. Second half of his life, it's Franzen. And after he got the Genius Award, the MacArthur Award, um, you know, uh, Costello called him and said, aren't you happy? You know, they're calling you a genius. And he said, well, it means I don't have to work at Wendy's, so it's great. And then he said, no, but David, you are a genius. I mean, that's true. And then he, there was a pause, and then David said, that just means I fooled you too. Right. No, I get that. Look, the obliga- I'm friends yeah. with a couple of MacArthur winners, as I know yeah. you are. Yeah. And so I've, I've talked to them about it and how they sort of feel about it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'm talking about when you see the white hot thing up close and like the genius that requires a tremendous amount of work, right? Because genius can also go away. Like I look at David Mamet's work, the first... 12 or 14 years you hold in your hands you read it over and over and it's kind of you you almost can't penetrate how why just words on a page are able to have the effect that they have right why it's like um right underneath these simple words the answers to so many things uh, said in a way that nobody else could say it and then and when you say the answer to things what do you mean in, in mammoth's case yeah what yeah. it meant at that moment um to engage in, in commerce as a man. I think that's beautifully said. To me, what I'm often looking for as a reader is just, it was the moment you can see how Mamet's making decisions to to do that dialogue line, to make that scene. And so oh, I read sure. that and I walk out. It's like a brain vitamin. I walk out feeling smarter. And all the writers I love have that effect. It's the effect that really great television can have on you too. You feel you walked in woozy and dumb and you walk up standing oh, taller with a rigid haircut. But because I was somebody who couldn't do this till I was 30. Because I was someone who always felt like they were the other and that people were anointed. and They were anointed, they were picked, they were recognized, they knew they were different, and they got to be the artists. And I felt like I wasn't one of those people, so I couldn't be the artist. And it was a tremendous amount of work for me to go, you know what? I mean, I'm never, what if I never become Scorsese? Or what if I never become Nicole Holof Center? Can I still, you know, can I still make two people walk down the street and talk to one another? Is it worth trying to do that? And I was like, you know what? I found a way that, yes, it was. But I could see how spending five days with David Foster Wallace, who, who I have to say, my wife and son talk about being in our apartment the day that Wallace died. I went to our computer. It was still a desktop computer in the kitchen. And uh, the thing came up that David Foster Wallace was dead. And, but to my wife my, my, and, and son, 
all they heard. They were just minding the, super early in the morning because I get up super early and they just heard me scream fuck. <laughs> they said the loudest. They were sure that an intimate had uh, died. You know, and I, uh, I think about David Foster Wallace pretty much every day. I didn't know him. I think about it every day uh, because he was the guy out there in the world describing it to me. He was, I would walk around and I'd be in an airport or I'd be, I could be at a beach. I could be in a bookstore and something would happen and I would turn, you know, to either Amy or my creative partner, Dave, because we're together all the time. And I would say, God, don't you wish Wallace were here to describe that or to dive into that or to tell us. And he was the guy out there. You know, that guy um, at the best restaurant in the world, they say Noma, Rennie, that, that chef who's in this restaurant in Scandinavia somewhere. Um, it'll be in the notes. He forages. And all the other chefs love him because this guy will go and find this little patch of land in between two highways that has a weird thing growing. And he'll pick it and he'll bring it back and cook it and present it in a way that nobody else could. Does he warn the diners that it comes from uh, yeah. highway yeah. ground? Yeah, no, no, they go there okay. for that. Because okay. that sounds like a tort. No, it's uh, not a tort. It's <laughs> okay. not a crime. He definitely warns you. And people all around the world go and you can't get into his restaurant for a year. But to me, that's what Dave, Dave went out there and he found this stuff and he showed it to me in a way I never would have seen it. And I felt like he was talking just to me in fiction and nonfiction. I, it's hard not to think that that spending that time didn't put up for you in some way a target that felt very difficult to hit. Um, I'm going to answer this in a three-part way. But before, it's a trivia thing. Do you know that the hinges on these microphones, they say Heil? Are these like World War II fan uh, hinge microphones? Do you see this? We're at Slate. Uh, <laughs> I work at the Slate Studios. If well, that's a subversive uh, thing that, that's happening, we'll get did, to the did bottom you buy of it. This, did you buy these from some kind of surplus store in middle I don't, Europe? I don't, I don't buy them. Can You uh, can, You think they came out of the bunker? <laughs> this know. is what they were working no, on the bunker. Clearly, the, yeah. they were working on this in the bunker, but, but if you can, and all the sci-fi stories are true. Can you put in the notes a photograph of this hinge thing? Yeah. Somebody okay. went back in time, and instead of killing Hitler, they just took these microphones from the bunker. So, But let me, let me say... My answer to that, and I appreciate you asking, and it's um, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the things I notice is the great storytelling acumen of people who tell stories not just with words, but with words and pictures. It is for you, as it is for Donald Margulies and for David Cantor, who produced that movie as a very smart producer, and John Pontlet, who's a great a great storytelling director. It's a better story if my my uh, my confrontation with the great talent of this period um, made me never want to practice my magic again. My humble magic, seeing seeing the seeing the storms he could raise with his hands, and seeing how that he could open the skies and the waters. I looked at my humble magic and uh, for, you know and uh, for, foresaw it forever, more or less. Right? It's a better story. Um, but in fact, uh, to look at this in a prose way, he's he's more famous and beloved as a nonfiction writer. So if I was going if he was going to have that impact on me, I would never have written journalism again. But in fact, what I've written since then is a great deal of nonfiction. Yeah, but I think that's um, untrue because I think that you could touch and understand. I don't believe you. I don't believe that. The nonfiction is that was, safer. Come on, Brian, that no, was so no, good. Uh, like, I don't well, believe one, one you because you learn, the non. The non. When you learn about people is when you're arguing with them. When you have an when you have a point that you know is a killer point. If they just say, if they stroke their beard or their clean shaven chin and say, "Yeah, that's pretty good. We'll move on," right? But if they are not, let's say, as uh, as fair an arguer as that, then they will restate what they want you to say. So anyway, please go ahead and restate. No, I'm not. We're not even arguing. Yeah. No, by argue, I just mean the, the classic no, sense. No, I know what you mean, the, but I want to say argument be, clinic because the nonfiction, um, one can approach the nonfiction. One can deconstruct the nonfiction in a way 
and get inside of what it was, what it took. He talked a lot about what it took to do the nonfiction. Um, and the fiction was the thing that seemed to, to blow your mind, that he was able to dive inside in a way. You're, that's what you talk to him. I mean, you're talking to him about it and you're talking about it in, in, your, in your book. So you feel it, that's fine. I'll leave it. You feel that it has no, that that being up close to Wallace, Infinite Jest itself was not like Brian Wilson hearing Sergeant okay, well, Peppers. It's not like in your mind, it did not have any um, effect in terms of uh, making you qu- uh, question or hold off on publishing fiction. I would say more that it, it enhanced what was possible. Like when Quentin. Uh, when he, uh, I had lived Reservoir Dogs. I'm sure you saw it when it came out. Yeah. I saw it twice that night because it was a thrilling movie. Um, when he did Pulp Fiction, he showed a new way to do dialogue and crime. So people didn't stop making movies. They made movies that were like Pulp Fiction. And that's what happens when a great artist comes around. So no, it was more, it was more that it enhanced my idea of what was possible. My guest today is David Lipsky. We'll be back right after this quick break. This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree code for easy online payments. If you're a mobile app developer, check out Braintree. Braintree is the payments solution used by companies like Uber, Airbnb, Hotel Tonight, Living Social, and Muntree. Braintree has made the payment experiences in these apps seamless and magical, and now you can add a similar experience to your own app. With excellent customer service and simple integration, Braintree gets you ready to receive payments quickly. Braintree's continuous support plus fast payouts means you'll be prepared as your company grows from your first dollar to your billion. Braintree is helping solve the problem of mobile cart abandonment by offering a best-in-class mobile checkout experience. Check it out for yourself. Braintree gives you a full-stack payment solution, support for all payment types your customers might want. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo cards, more, all with a single integration across all platforms with superior fraud protection, customer service, and fast payouts. To learn more, and for your $50,000 in transactions without paying a fee, go to BraintreePayments.com slash moment. That's BraintreePayments.com slash moment. So when you say that Dave raised what was possible, and I think he did do that in nonfiction too, did it take you time to process that? And do you think it took the rest of us time? Because there's... there's um, there are people who have who now will not only see Dave's nonfiction was more popular, but they'll they'll make the argument that it's better. Well, it's it's easier. Like he is saying, okay, here is the way I look at it, right? But then I want to, if you're looking at him, like if he's going to meet you socially, if he's going to have dinner with you, but he's not going to invite you to his house, and he just wants it, it, uh, writing that way. If he wants you to see what's good about him, this is the social presentation of this incredible strength, right? But if you actually want to be his friend. Here is the giant thing. Here is the tremendous, the tremendous long scenes in Infinite Jest. That incredible scene of the people at a, at the ten, at the Anfield Tennis Academy just having dinner. I mean, it's an amazing scene. It's um, just these guys just debating whether it's powdered milk or real milk in the milk dispenser, and they keep going over. It. And then at the end, casually, we, we learn that it actually is powdered milk. <laughs> but the nonfiction is just here is tremendous, tremendous charm. Here is this new way of looking at the world. And the question I wanted to ask you, and just to, to get at how exciting this is, do you remember when the first Woody Allen films, the, the first ones where he was telling his story kind of, like Annie Hall in Manhattan? Oh, yeah, sure. How did it feel to you? Right. No, the, the world exploded. Now, but it's funny when you talk about Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> I, uh, when Pulp Fiction came out, I, I've written about this, and one of the great things that ever happened to me professionally 
I wrote this. I wrote about Quentin Tarantino um, in the when this Kill Bill controversy happened. I'm uh, not Kill Bill controversy when the um, the controversy about the uh, the new movie came out when someone had leaked the script. I wrote about a, an airplane trip Quentin and I took together, and uh, how he read me Kill Bill when it was in progress, and and how having that experience was incredible. Um, but what led what what started that, and the reason that he took me into his confidence that night was that I had just finished writing a piece called "The Anxiety of Tarantino," that was inspired by Harold Bloom, and I went and talked to Bloom about it, and it was about how do you write? And so you bring when you brought up Pulp Fiction, yeah. um, I actually wrote a piece based on the anxiety of influence about how to keep going after Quentin Tarantino made Pulp Fiction if you wanted to make a crime huh. film and how daunting it was and, and how Ra- you had Rounders to Rounders was like two or three years after that 94 to right Pulp Fiction was 94 yeah. Rounders came out in 98 yeah so four years um, and and then Knockaround Guys which was the one that really uh, was there was almost no way what I talked about in that thing and I think it is relevant to this quandary that somebody who really uh, apprehended what was so great about Infinite Jazz uh what I, what Dave and I realized in making the movie was, if you have uh, these young characters, every decision you make, you have to sort of know that you're either refuting Tarantino or aping hmm. Tarantino. Once you have a young character with a gun in his pocket, saying interesting things and making pop culture references, even if that's how you go through life without the gun, but... You know, if you take characters who could have been a diner and put a gun okay, in their oh, pocket. So I was waiting for you to say that title. You always made the same assumption, right? Does he cop to that? Do you know? I've well, never, I've never read him copping to that. No, but I mean, I the other. So the other movie I've written about in the same way is yeah. Diner. The yeah. movies I, I've written about Pulp Fiction and Diner. But, in that but way. did you hear? And I mean, you, you saw Reservoir Dogs opens, right? It opens in a diner. Did you hear someone hearing that way that Levinson found to say, "Hey, the the way we kibitz, right? The way we chep each other," started to go all Jewish. Uh, uh, in what I think of as a Goetia magazine slate. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, but to see him incorporating that 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 willingness to spend time on trivialities, like someone's mooching off your fries, right? Someone, hey, if you want to order it, just order it. You know, they'll order it too, right? I thought that he had found a way. He had heard that and he had thought it was great. And he had found a way to use that in crime stuff. Interesting. I mean, the movie actually opens um, actually opens with uh, someone bleeding out in a car okay yes and then and it then flashes, flashes to the diner and my, my, I, no, no i just want to just yeah, yeah. you know i'll get believe yeah. me people will yeah. write that note uh if i don't say it so um i can get the quentins wrong and uh faulkner nobody cares but uh, don't get the Tarantino <laughs> opening shot wrong that's a big problem okay so why were you bringing up diner well no i i i was bringing up diner because i was saying that if you were if you had characters like that you know you were inspired by diner inspired by sort of those the way you were trying to do a modern day thing like rounders definitely was hugely inspired by diner but you put gun there are no guns in rounders you put guns in somebody's pocket and immediately tarantino hangs over the whole thing and can stop you from i felt keenly um even though i had wanted to tell that story that's in knockaround guys i grew up around the sons of wise guys i wanted to tell that story forever almost didn't tell it because i was like well Tarantino's stamp is so enormous on this stuff that I shouldn't. And I wrote that piece, and then he ended up putting the piece on the 10th anniversary edition of Pulp Fiction. That's great. Which was amazing for me that he he uh, gave it his imprimatur. But, but I think it's great because that means I can read that piece. It's somewhere. You can find it somewhere. Okay. It's not online for some reason. We've never found the piece, but it's it exists. So um, 
when the movie ends, you give Wallace your number, your address. He sends you something you left at his at his house. You also give him your, your novel. And what did you make of, and I'm going to tie this into something, you know, the, the Times, Tony Scott, who gave the thing a great review, and who I think is an excellent critic. And also a really smart reader of Wallace. Yes. Uh, and it's funny, though, I forgot that Walter Kern wrote that huge piece, and Kern and I once argued about hideous men for a long time, which he didn't like. I think that's the one he didn't huh. like. Um, but... And Kern also just a super smart critic too, and caught that again. But that's most of the really good writer. When someone too. is writing in a, in a new, exciting way, writers writers will welcome him because they're showing what's possible. And Kern was thrilled to welcome in a great new writer. But anyway, yes. go on. And his book up yeah. in the air is great. Yeah. Even if you love the movie, yeah. the book is hilarious and great. But he uh, he calls you a Salieri figure, Tony Scott. In no, his he, review, by the way, he does not. Does he? he? Yeah. You think he doesn't? <laughs> No, I, um, I'm, smiling, um, I'm smiling. I'm smiling for a different reason. Why? Actually, uh, why? What? What? What strikes you about that? It kind of goes back to what we were saying. Like my idea of what a writing career would be is heavily based in growing up as a reader in the '80s and '90s. Yes, right? and there was a certain kind of career, right? You would be, you would be Laurie Moore writing a book of stories every four or five years. Amazing story writer, by the way. Yes, incredible. Um, yeah, you, you'd be, or you'd be Philip Roth writing uh, a novel every two years, and then they would get increasingly bitter and tight, and they would suddenly explode into this this great interest in how the nation. Her story right? about the person coming down the stairs. I mean, the escalator. With the shot. Laurie Moore has this incredible story about about an characters on an escalator. The um, sick child. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's uh, people like that are the only people here, right? Yes. That's one from '96. Again, that was so. My notion of what my notion of, of what a writing career was going to be like kind of changes by then. Like that is Laurie Moore's best known story. People like that are the only people here. And when it was published in the New Yorker, it was published in the fiction section, but it was indicated as being nonfiction. It was a picture of her, and she was very angry about that. Right? Sure. And that piece is about how she wrote it. Uh, throughout that piece, her husband keeps saying, "Take notes. We're going to need the money." Right, and he keeps saying, "Are you taking notes?" And the piece ends. Their son is fine, <coughs> but the piece ends with this wonderful summation about how it feels to get the baby back and to never want to see anyone from that tortured place yes. again. The, pedi- yes. the, the pediatric oncology clinic of that hospital. And then there's a pause. There's this paragraph break, and then she says, "Here are the notes. Now, where is the money?" And there was an idea, a very exciting idea in the mid '90s, part of the way David was writing his essays too, that there would be some merging of what fiction and nonfiction were. And we're seeing it now with people like Nosgaard or like Ben Lerner's book, 1004, right? I haven't read that book. And so any writer will have these feelings. It's a little bit like what Tarantino was saying, what should your fourth fourth movie be? What should your fifth movie be? And there are times when you'll have your night terrors, right? Like I... Oh, yeah. Yeah, here, here, here have been 15 productive years for me and I have done some nonfiction books that I'm immensely proud of and, um, and some of which have been extremely difficult to do. And like, am I not doing the thing I wanted to do? Like, I wanted to do what Philip Roth did, what Laurie Moore did. Laurie Moore had this wonderful record of what it is to be an American woman <coughs> from the age 30 to 40, right? And one of the nice things, when I, when I was looking at this book, when I was looking at the screenplay and making sure, as a, the, the phrase that James Ponsolt, the director, keeps using is, fierce advocate for David Wallace. Right. And I wanted to make sure that there was nothing that, <coughs> mm, that yes. wasn't from the book because that was what, you know, he said he didn't want anyone else controlling the image that's coming across. Right. Um, but when I read that, I thought, okay, I wanted to have spent, like, and the, the writer that I imagined myself to be, I wanted to spend my 30s giving a record of what it was like to be a, a, an American in their early 30s. And I thought that with this book, I had done it anyway. 
Do you know what I mean? Here are these people who are young writers. They're talking about their lives. And that although I would have wanted to do something that was on the Lori Moore model or the Philip Roth model, yeah. accidentally, there was this thing which is, here is exactly what it felt like at that time. Sure. No, but oh, so even if uh, Tony Scott didn't say Salieri, no, I mean, Salieri, I just want to say, like, I just put your name in in Salieri, okay. and it comes up in a hundred different okay. spots. Does it only come up in a hundred different spots? Um, do, are, you, are you a fan of, um, anyone here a fan of the Bible? Uh, the, the Christian Bible. Okay, there's a thing. There's a thing that the, when Christ is speaking to the Sadducees, I have no. I've never said that word out loud, but it's in one of the sermons he gives. Yeah. Um, they're trying to mess him up because these are the priests who have made a deal with the occupying Roman army, and so they say to him because he is, aside from being this incredible rebbe, he also is someone who is living under occupation, right? And so someone chats out from the crowd, someone who's been suggested to do this by the Sadducees. Uh, hey, what do you think about the taxes? Right. And he says, Lord, how they tempt me. Right. <laughs> and then his answer is, anyone have a penny in their pocket? And just take it out. Okay, can you pick, pass it up? Look at, look at what's on the front of the penny. It's a picture of Caesar. Give back to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. And it's a great answer, right? Um, this movie and the book, this movie is a beautiful story, which is about two people driving and having a great conversation. That was how it read to me when I, when I put the book together. And then when I sat down and watched yes. the movie... Here is this great thing. These people don't know each other, and they have different ideas of how you can be living, and they build a conversation together, and they take a trip together in a way that, to me as a viewer, is kind of thrilling. And it is, to me, it's a, it's a movie that's close in spirit to, like, Lost in Translation. They don't know each other. They're not going to see each other again, probably. But I think that in thinking about how to market it, which is, David calls a thing the fuss when he's talking about yeah. the tremendous stuff about Infinite Jest. How do you get people, you're giving them a really human, warm thing. And it was very fun uh, last week when I was out in California for the movie. We went out and showed it to an audience in Palm Springs. Did not know who Wallace was. Didn't, had never heard of him, hadn't read him. I think there were two people in the audience who were librarians. Who had never, he- never heard of him? There's like, um, for people who are readers, he is this gigantic figure, right? But if you are a different kind of reader, you might not have heard of him. Right? There might have been people who wouldn't have known who Joyce was, who were reading great stuff, who were reading Chesterton in 1910, 1920. Um, and they, I was curious and, to be frank, kind of nervous um, sitting in this audience because I was going to have to answer questions sure. afterwards. Would they like this person? They don't know who he is. They have no reason to like him. It's not they're meeting a cultural figure. It's just here is this guy. And they started kind of loving him because he is charming. He is alive. He is seeing, he is seeing the world more clearly than you and setting a standard to which you can aspire. He's saying that if you, you can do this too. There's a great thing. My favorite colonel at, uh, at West Point, he said teaching is not about information. It's about presenting a charismatic model to which they can aspire. And here was him saying, you can see your, you can see what's happening in your world, right? That great joke when he goes into a studio like this one and uh, the producer says to him, we record, you know, we, we only record digitally. I hope that's okay. And uh, I said, told my son this joke yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. I, we, it's the, the, the best. Then yeah. I should just give yes or no answers. Yeah, exactly. It's and brilliant. A great yeah. thing about the movie is that it doesn't connect the dots and say the word binary. Exactly. He doesn't say binary. Yeah. No, exactly. He doesn't say ones and zeros. And it's a great moment. And I love that you captured it the way that you did. And I, it was, I, Sam saw the movie with my yeah. son and I saw the movie together and we were walking today and uh, I said that was my maybe my favorite line in the movie because it I loved the restraint that that moment showed, which didn't explain the joke. But you're going to also want to be awake that same way because you know the pleasure it gave you. You're going to want to be awake at what people are saying and find the thing that, that, that's alive in it, right? And that's the standard that he's setting. And that's what's thrilling about watching him. Yes. Because okay. it, go yeah. ahead. No, no you go. Because I asked you about the Salieri thing. And no, your way going. to answer yeah. is to say, 
Okay, so that that is what the movie is, and it's beautiful, right? Yes. And it is these two guys. It looks beautiful. Yes. And it is a record of this guy. And if you don't know who he is, it is exposure to a way to be alive, right? Right. Um, but I think that that that's harder for people whose jobs it is to sell movies. That is a more difficult thing, right? You will really like this, or you should watch these guys talk. That's harder. By the way, I think you will really like this can work, right? Yes. But I think that a, a decision which is an intelligent one, and uh, it has been kind of to make it seem like movies that we understand more. And so uh, I love my production partners. <laughs> I think yes. it's funny to be able to be sitting next to you, who I've always admired tremendously as, a, as someone who's in this field, right? Thank you. And to be using a phrase from your world like my production partners. Um, but I think there was a decision that that would be, everyone knows the Salieri Amadeus thing. Yep. The first mention, for, for people who are curious, that you can track when the first time in my life my name was associated with Antonio Salieri. It was James, I just looked, James Ponsold said it, the director of the movie. Yeah, and so, and he's great, and I think that... Um, right, and A.O. Scott didn't say it. Um, yeah. It was in IndieWire, it's been in a bunch of reviews. But I was going to say, um, I don't think that's fair. I do believe you stopped writing fiction partially because of that five days, but I don't believe the Salieri thing is even close to fair. I see somebody who adored this guy, who recognized this guy as the son in a way, and who actually only wanted to lift him up and celebrate him. And I see none of the desire to tear him down. I only see a partial uh, desire to, to self-immolation, uh, which is why I believe the not a writing, because the parts that you chose to share, you present yourself you, it, it seems to me that w one of the things you've done in always talking about it was never present yourself as his equal. Um, you leave in, because it was your choice what to leave in and what not to leave in, your own pettiness or your own uh, uh, sense of, of uh, his uh, enormity. And so to me, while there's nothing hagiographic he about it, is that a word? Hagiographic, uh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, about it. Uh, it is to me somebody saying like, ah, well, this exists. This thing truly shines brightly here. Behold. And so I don't think the Salieri thing is even cl close to fair. I think you recognized a Mozart, but I don't think that you said, I'm going to tear it down and com compete with it. I think you like said, um, here, let me get out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Or like, hey, here's some great music by this guy. And if you haven't heard it, <laughs> sit down. I'm going to, I'm going to find someone to play this for you. Yeah. But I think like. James Ponsolt loves David Wallace's work. As he, I mean, he had he had his work read at his wedding. The reason he wanted to do this project was out of love for Wallace. But I think that you know that what he's hearing is how do I, you know, I've done I've done this great thing and I've done this great thing which I know is good for me as a as someone showing with the, showing their stuff. And I also did this great thing about this writer. And how do I get people in? How do I get them to come? And if there's a movie like Amadeus that everybody has seen, sure, that's not the that's not the worst thing in the world to do. Were your, uh, were your feelings hurt that he didn't write you about your novel? No. Uh, actually, the, um, the, uh, the woman who is in the movie, um, she, had, <laughs> she, she remembered the shoe coming. You were very nice to not, to not spoil that joke at the end of the thing. When he sent me the shoe back, A, I, I had promised to send him a copy of, and the, for people who don't love writers, and I hope everyone loves writers, this is going to sound incredibly nerdy. 
but I thought that he should read Nabokov's letters because Nabokov is incredibly lively and fun and clear-eyed. Uh, Glenn Kenny, by the way, uh, said that I, he, he did not like hearing my sense of Nabokov's late letters. But, but once he became really famous... What do you mean? Of, he, just, he, he wrote in a review of that book that he had really enjoyed the book, but that he could have done without my reflections on the late letters of Nabokov. Right. Um, well, but, this whole thing isn't really Glenn's... Th- I mean, clearly not Glenn's <laughs> yeah. thing. No, but he loved the book. He was, right. he was super smart. He wrote a really brilliant essay He is essay a super smart yeah. person. He just um, has uh, very clear opinions. And you have to respect that, right? He loves David. Um, and knew David, I imagine, much better than I knew David. Um, but in in Nabokov's late letters, Nabokov waited, uh, you know, until he was in his late 60s to get what David got at 34. And one of the things that was interesting was that all of the joy and verve in his letters went away, and it was all just uh, reputation conservation, like making corrections in newspapers, right? Like saying, I would never do that at all, yeah. get very plummy. And so I was saying, okay, this is what can happen, so take a look at it just as a kind of a warning thing, right? And then I got home, and I had to do another story, and then I came back. And then it's one of those things, and it happens to you. If you have to write a thank you note to someone or to send something, then it's like 10 days late or 14 days late. And every day it's like you feel it, and it's like it's too late, right? And then I got the shoe back, and then I didn't respond to that at all because it was embarrassing. So... Did you send? You didn't send. The I didn't send letters. the Abakov. I just I had to go out to Seattle to do this story. On... And then, did the Wallace piece end up in Rolling Stone? It did. Um, I didn't. I didn't write it. I was out living with heroin addicts out in, right. in the yeah, Northwest. So who wrote it? Oh, so so no one wrote it. So when I when I came back, then I was doing. You know, I went to West Point two years later. Um, then I came back. Then I wrote about David for NPR. I did a piece. Yes. Yeah, which was great, and that was. But but you you never the piece you went. The, the piece that became this book was never in Rolling Stone. No, the piece that became this book then after David died, and it was funny when you were saying that you screamed, my mom, who knew that I loved Wallace, she saw the news and she came up to my house, which I thought was really, really That's warm. That's beautiful, yeah. yeah. Um, but I did a piece about him for NPR. Um, I hadn't wanted to do it, and the, my producer there, a great woman, Madeline Silva, she said... I know you loved him. I know you. I know you spent I time with it. him. Yeah, and uh, I mean, said, I remember yeah, it, and I remembered it when I saw the yeah. when I saw it in the movie last night. I remembered that happening. I've heard it. Yeah, Jesse did. A, he did a great job, and they, it was great. They used Robert Siegel's introduction. I thought was a nice. Yeah, touch. I thought that was. Yeah. I thought the whole thing was lovely. But uh, but why didn't you end up doing the piece? No, for I did. So no, I did. Characters. So I didn't want. So Ellen said, "If you know, I know you know if him was alive, right?" And when people die that way, people will begin, will, they'll begin reading everything they wrote through a gray lens, basically, right? Yeah. They'll always say, okay, this is, this is what he sees talking about dying, right? Or he was obviously depressive. Yeah. And that's, that might be fine for a certain kind of writer, but David's work is about being alive. It, there's, there's a line at the end of his piece about John McCain. It's four, it's four words, try to stay awake. And so to lose that because, because of medical things that happened in the end of his life would have been a horrible thing. And so Ellen encouraged me to do that broadcast. Rolling Stone had already called and said, I said, I don't want to write about him. And then they heard the NPR thing, and they said, "Watch that NPR." And I said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, that goes for here too." So I used our driving around, and I tell his story in his words in that piece. Right, but that was after that was after that. he died. That's right. Well, but but when did you do the report? When did you go report the Infinite in Jazz piece? In March, uh, I think ninth to the fifteenth of what year? Like the fourteenth of ninety six. Right, and then you didn't publish in Rolling Stone about him until two thousand and eight. That's right. Yeah, that's not a typical gestation period. <laughs> no, if Kubrick were doing the piece, it would yeah. be a, a, a Kubrick, no, Kubrick so, profile. So then, why, why, why didn't you? Uh, well, for just a do minute, it right I mean, away. Do, do you, it, for magazines, it's like I thought when you get assigned that kind of thing, you you 
you kind of, and they send you on the road, you're kind of obligated to come back with the story. It's different. At that at that time, uh, there were two writers who Jan really liked to have do things. It was me and a writer named Rich Cohen who wrote, yeah, and if you sure. read football, he wrote that book about, he wrote that book Monsters About the Bears. If you haven't read it, it's a brilliant book about football. Oh, it's a different Rich Cohen than wrote the uh, Sweet and low. Tough Guys. Tough and, Jews, yeah. Did he write the no, same guy? Yeah, same guy. And he wrote the Jerry Weintraub book, That's too. right, exactly. Yeah, um, I've met so, Rich. Yeah. So Jan would, when there were things that Jan really cared about, he would send me or Rich out to do them. So I came back from Illinois. Jan, the, a guy named Shannon Hoon, who was the lead singer for Blind Melon, yeah, Blind had Mel, died. Of course, yeah. And then Jan had seen numbers of a tremendous heroin, heroin use rise in Seattle. And so he said, okay, stop what you're doing right now. Go out there and find people to live with. That took about a month, came back, writing the story takes about two weeks, closing it takes about a week. At that point, then it comes out, and then I then my, my time with David had been like, let's say the whole thing was about two weeks, so now it's the middle of May, and the book came out in February. In magazine terms, that's It was like, over. Yeah, that's a draft. We can't and do the piece So did anymore. you tell David? Did you find a way to get word to him yeah, that you weren't I, publishing the piece? Because I, I, I just wonder, I don't know, there are certain questions that are raised watching the movie and reading the book, and one of them is, okay, this fiction question, which we've spoken to, and then the other is, I say, did you write the piece? And right now you go, of course, yes, I did write the piece for NPR, but I mean, that's 11 years later. So like, and, 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 and yes, it's true, the thing was over, but- it feels just on a human level, like, did you reach out to him? Did you tell him, hey, man, this ended up being something? Because part of it, you wonder as a viewer and as a reader, was it something that felt so special to you? You couldn't quite... Um, I called his agent and said, okay, there's, there's good news and bad news. David, you know, has been talking about whether it means he's a whore or not to be in Rolling Stone. And I know that he tried really hard to do this piece, that like he was working the tape at the end and stuff like that. So you can tell him that the, the, the bad news is that you know, it's too late to do the piece, but the good news is that he doesn't have to be appearing in, in Rolling Stone that way. Um, and you just said that to his agent. I, told, I called Bonnie, who's a great person. Yes. Um, it was very hard. Towards the end of the book, if, if you know the book well, like, he keeps saying, I don't know how you're going to boil this down. Like, yes. there's so much stuff yes. here, right? How are you going to do this? Like, I don't want to be you. Like, this is such a, this is such a tremendous amount of stuff. Um, I would read the transcripts afterwards, but... It kind of comes back to what you were saying about how writing careers work. And then you do with writing the piece, right? I'd always thought I would look at it and I would see that it was like this this net that had caught what these two writers were like. This yeah. great writer and this writer who's younger and and is very inspired and, and admiring of the other writer, what they were like for five days. And it was sort of exciting. I think, okay, could I cut it down to 90 pages and do it that way, right? Um, but I didn't want to... I didn't want to get back in touch with him. The hard thing for me, and it's, and it's particularly I think that this may be present in, in your industries too, if I contacted him, if I, if I wrote to him, there would always be part of it which is, I'd love a blurb. I'd love if, if you'd write on my book, hey, if you read The Art Fair, you know, that would be great for me. Like um, Emerson, Whitman knew that Emerson was the best writer. You know the yeah, story, do you? but tell okay. it. I know it, but it, it's a great story. Okay, so yeah. Whitman, um, so uh, Emerson's been calling for an American poetry, right? And Emerson clearly is the best uh, prose writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so Whitman is a self-popularizer. Like he reviews, he writes the Brooklyn Eagle. He's writing reviews of his own book, unsigned reviews. And he sends a copy of Leaves of Grass to Emerson, right? And he says, I think this answer is what you've been calling for, the new American poetry. And uh, Emerson gets it and reads it and writes back and says, I greet you at the beginning of an extraordinary career. 
there is, and then there is much in Leave the Grass, etc. And he writes his letter to Whitman, and Whitman, who is a young writer who's trying to make his way as a writer, just prints it as an ad. Well, yeah, I was going to say, he puts it, and then he puts <laughs> it in the book. On the yeah, book. book. On the cover but also, you got to explain like how yeah. hard it was back then to put. I mean, it wasn't like now where you would just. I mean, he had to go to great trouble to. Uh, affix it to the book didn't he and he that i didn't know yeah there's something about it where he had to affix it to the book in some way and uh, yeah I, and, and emerson was um not happy not pleased yeah. uh, uh about having been used in that way and so you felt like there was something self-serving i would think or that, you were concerned yeah. he would think that i was concerned he would say it and then he's a very clear reader of people there couldn't there couldn't but be that right when i was there for rolling stone i'm there doing a job that we've both agreed to. He wants people to know about his work and to read it, and I want to write a piece about him. So there's a there's a clear thing going on. But if I'm trying to keep a conversation going afterwards, there is that sense that you would feel a kernel of, I'm trying to get something from this person, or does this person think I'm trying to get something? And so I didn't want to... I made a rule that I wouldn't try to reach out to him until I had books that had been received as warmly. Um, the thing, yeah, but the, after the, the West standard, Point book came out. Exactly, yeah. So the standard the standard he had used was that, you know, when your picture is in Time Magazine, you know, your friends are having a feeling about it and your agents are having other feelings about it. And so I waited until I think July or June 29th of 2003 where my photo was in Time Magazine. And then I started writing emails saying, seven years ago we took a trip. I, I'm sure you remember. I hope you remember. Um, I would love to talk to you. I know you're in California now. And then there's a there's a thing I do when I'm writing email that I'm uncertain about is that I, I take the header off and I email it to myself and I read them and they just look like a crazy person wrote them. <laughs> so I never wrote them. And then I did this piece for NPR where they said, recommend a book right now. And I said, there's no really great books out now. But the book that I would have recommended to any reader in America, you know, until last year was a supposedly fun thing. It's the best image of what American life is like. But now, last year, there was considered a lobster. And then I talked about considered a lobster. And I thought that was, I may be over subtle or decorous. I thought that was a way of saying, you know, right. hi. And uh, and there was like a smoke signal. And I thought maybe Bonnie or someone would say, hey, you know, the, the right. guy who drove you in the Pontiac, the Pontiac Grand Am is talking about you on the radio. Right, because yeah. we have conversations with our gods that we assume they hear. Yeah, I mean, it may have been cargo, you know, it may have been cargo cult I mean, behavior, but... You know, we, we do. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, like I often, uh, I said the other day, uh, they say don't meet your heroes, but I, because they'll disappoint you, but um, I would do almost anything to get to meet Murakami, and he could never disappoint me because everything in his fiction sets him up to be any way that he he would be uh, upon meeting him. That's for sure. Right? He, there, there's sort of no human behavior that, that he could uh, have at, at, at dinner or in, in meeting him that would make me think that the idea I carry in my head is uh, false. Yeah. Um, but I imagine that if I had met <clears throat> if I had met Hemingway, it might have been like um, Mailer wrote a letter to Hemingway saying, this is the last time, if you don't answer it, you bastard. Do you know what I mean? And that really was the last time. I think he sent him to Deer Park, and that was the end of it. The weird thing about David is that it made me like him more. I mean, he's great, and he's so he's so he's so willing to ask himself why he feels things. I mean, one of the things... One of the things I noticed from reading him is just being direct about what you're experiencing, that that's a huge thing because people aren't. So mostly. how does it feel right now for you? Have you, been, have you written about what it feels like right now? I mean, the movie just came out three days ago, but people have been watching for the last couple of months. I mean, how does it feel walking around now, having had Jesse Eisenberg portray you in this way, having people writing about you, not the artist, but you, the, the human, at a certain vulnerable point in your, in your life? It seems weird in that it is 
this five this five day trip that I took, right? Um, but I had wanted. I mean, for me personally, the the thing that was exciting to me was um, and like. Uh, there were things that people had said while it was being shot, like you should go to the set and stuff like that. And I thought that if I went to the set, it would be weird because it's like that's the person who this is about and he's making us uncomfortable. So I didn't go. And my friends who were in your community, they were like, you're missing a terrible thing. If you go as the waiter to a set, like they get you they get you food and coffee and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, I can just go to a restaurant and bring me food and coffee. So it isn't that unique. Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I didn't go. I went when they were in New York because it was the last. It was did the last Jesse shot. ever call you and ask you questions? Oh, sure, no, he did. But um, but the thing that mattered to me that I was really excited about was that house that we spent the time in had been sold. Uh, David had moved out to Claremont to teach at Pomona College, and there was no way to ever be in that space again. And part of what I had thought when I would think about talking to him as someone who also had had books that were welcomed by the culture um, was that we would sit there again and it would be different. And then the house was gone. Oh. And then well, I was waiting when the when the film was ready for me to see. And we, you know, I had made. I was very careful to when I was talking to the art director. He asked me how the house was designed because the house didn't look the same way. And so I was saying, here's where, here's where the bookcases are. Here, we can find photos of it. And then to walk into that house as a viewer and see it again was just a great thing for me as a viewer. And but what about now? As people like when people are writing about when you you know are you able to identify in some way with what David was experiencing in, in terms of people trying to understand him or thinking oh, or talking, kind of talking having about... a reductive uh, uh, vision. You know, David talks about how much he hates the sort of reductive look, uh, the two-dimensionalizing in a way, but he's the reductive look at things. Are you fi- feeling that people are uh, apprehending you in that way now? No, because they are they're going on the trip. Like the book was written to give them a chance to spend time with David Wallace. The movie lets more people do that, and that's that's my concern. That was that was the project that I was trying to make. But they're spending time with you too. They are, but like when I wrote the book, if uh, if you ever, if you ever read the book again, you'll notice that I cut my answers down as short as possible because I wrote that book as a fan. And so I was thinking, as a reader, as someone who loves David Wallace, right, what would I want from this book is just David talking as much as possible and just enough from the other guy so that you know what he's talking about. And then when there are times when he's asking me questions that's unavoidable, then I would try to pare those down as much too. And I, I watched the movie as a fan of Wallace, right? I wanted, I wanted people to see that writers aren't the way we imagine them, right? He is a Pop-Tart fan. He did a lot of writing at Denny's. And he is also, sometimes we think that people only are on when they're at their keyboard. He is on all the time. He's, he's noticing everything and that it makes you feel happy. It makes you feel happy to see and it makes you feel happy to do. It makes a lot of sense. Um, my favorite moment in the book, I think, is not in the movie, which it was a food moment. It's that moment when he talks about why eat eggs in the morning. That's amazing, right? You know, I saw like uh, like Colin Malloy from the Decemberists grab that. He's the only person aside from you and I who loves that. Really? They were lambent form. He talked about yeah, it somewhere? It's, it's, yeah, he, he think he tweeted about it. They're a lambent form and you want to eat food that's nice to you. Yeah, and, and it's just I'm incredible about the morning. I'm having a hamburger first thing in the morning. Yeah, yeah I just great. find it I uh, incredible. I remember reading it and thinking, God, yeah. Look, the great thing about the book is, uh, um, I like I said, I, I got to meet Dave Wallace twice, but I never got to really have a conversation with him. And so you do feel like in the book, in the movie that you are getting to, um, and I think in the book even in a deeper way, uh, and um, because you don't have, uh, it's a fine performance, but you don't, you don't have, uh, you know, J- Jason's performance. Um, it's great. Uh, it's fine for fine in the the best sense of the word, not just like oh, it's okay. I mean, it's a fine performance. 
But he's translating, and in the book, there's no translation, so you can just really have, it really does feel like Dave Wallace is uh, talking to you. So now, I'm really happy that you said that, but I know you have another question, but like, what you said is the way I read the book, and I couldn't tell if it's just me because it will spark neurons that have the memories of it, but I have the feeling when I read it of a person there in the same way that you know how a person that you know it feels when they're in the room. That's how the book I mean, I don't know me. if you, I assume you've read Quack this way, Garner and Wallace talking, but way. that's the other example of it. Now, they were, t- and, and what was great in Quack this way, uh, and Garner was on this podcast, but what was fantastic is, uh, because it's something he cares about so much, Wallace, that you really, it's a focused conversation, but Garner kept him, was his equal in lang- talking about language and was able to keep him talking long enough that you understand underneath that you get all these underpinnings about what really mattered to Wallace. And I think like the two books together are a great gift to give somebody. Um, and I hope Garner will release the recordings of the entire thing because I think he has it. That would be fun And I hear. hope he, he does. Um, and I think there's some, there might also be some uh, video. But, uh, just to, to start to wrap up, um, it feels like you can finally put this behind you. As opposed to have I had a hard time putting it behind me by well, heretofore? Well, you've been involved with this project for a very long time. So no, yeah. I don't think you have been able to put it behind you. My guess is just that you've been, you wrote this book, Wallace dies, you do the NPR thing, Rolling Stone, you write the book, you go on the book tour. It, the book changes your position in the culture uh, deepens it. It makes you much more famous than you were. You then get the movie made and are promoting the movie. So yeah, I would say that it's fair to say that you are on the other side of it now. And I'm wondering, you know, where it leaves you and what you were thinking about mo- moving forward. Well, I'm happy in that when, like it was, it was hard, as I was saying to you before, to get the book published in this form because people wanted something more traditional. And I think that was one of the great decisions that David Cantor and, and uh, Donald Margulies and James Ponsolt made, which is, we're not going to tell this guy's story. We're going to tell what it's like to be with him. So, and we're going to say, you will spend the time with him from when his guy steps into his house to when he drives away from his house. And it is a new way to tell that story in a way that I think is kind of great. Um, so, in a way, I can be happy. Like, what I'd want to do with the book is now over, right? This is... Yeah, yeah you did it. Which is nice. Um so uh, now I can go back to um, to finishing the book that I'm finishing now, and then I can face the shambles of my fiction career that apparently uh, exposure exposure during an Illinois winter to the best writer of the last thirty years apparently has created. And what are you now? What are you gonna? <laughs> Why are you not laughing at what that? Are you, what are you gonna? Uh, what are you writing? I'm finishing a book on a, a cultural history of climate change. Oh, that's awesome! It's a pretty cool book. When is it coming out? When are you um, going to finish I it? I believe it's coming out uh, towards the middle of next year. The Lori Moore Escalator thing is in her, it's this great moment, but it's in um, her it's not, novel, A Gate at the, uh, Gate at the it's, Stairs. It's not in the p It's story. not in that. Yeah. It's in A Gate yeah. at the Stairs when someone There's runs no down the escalator. No, I, I, and, and so- um, You were doing that while we were talking? For you that one searching? second. That's why I didn't nice, laugh at that thing. Nice I just, just found yeah. that one thing. Um, because I knew, oh, that's not in that story. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah. I'm like, but that's not in that. Um Lauren was able to just vividly describe things that then stay with you for a long period of time. Do you want to read it out loud? No, I don't have the moment. I don't have the exact moment. I just know that that's in that thing. It's in the book, um, A Gate at the Stairs. I like like how you hit the name of the show. I don't have that moment. Well, you know, I wasn't being self-referential, though I certainly have the capacity to be. Um, So this book is called, what's it called? Uh, This book is called uh, The Parrot and the Igloo and uh, The American Climate. And then on to some fiction? 
on disinfection. And we, <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see if that car has been uh, dinged and damaged or whether the engine still starts or whether it was just waiting, waiting in the garage saying, hey, why didn't you drive me all these years? Well, I, I hope and think it's that. I, I, you're uh, a really strong fiction writer. And so you, you know, I hope you're not, not allowing yourself to do it or finding reasons not to do it. That's, uh, you know, for a long time I found reasons not to do creative work and it's very painful. So, you know, I hope you do it. I appreciate it, Brian. I hope so, too. Well, is there anything else that, that, that you want to cover? Um, anything you feel that we didn't talk about that we should have or that you were hoping that I would ask you? No, it was great. But I, I would want to say one more thing about the movie. Yes. Like, David talks in this book about, like, he wants his fiction to, to touch people's nerve endings and to hook them in the stomach and maybe make them feel something a little bit. So what did the movie make you feel? I had a good time at the movie. In a way... Wallace is too large in my life to really watch that portrayal of him. I thought James made a, I think James made an excellent movie. And I think that Jesse, who I love as a person, I think Jesse is the least, maybe the least foolish person I've met in the entire entertainment complex. I completely He agree. has the an inability it, to be full of shit. Um, which can cause trouble in entertainment complex too. Yes, but he is just absolutely not full of shit. Um, and uh, he's in one of my movies. I directed him in a movie called Solitary Man. Dave and I did. Of course, that's great. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think the world of him. And so your book put me in the dream state that you hope great writing puts you in. And it allowed me to feel like I was really luxuriating in this conversation with David Foster Wallace. Um, and as Garner's book did, weirdly, uh, also. Mm. And the movie... Um, as I say, it's an excellent movie, uh, excellently made film. I think Ponsolt's going to be a major director. I, I would have him direct anything that I wrote, and I'd love him to come direct an episode of my TV series, all that. But you asked me the question, and my, my honest answer is it, didn't tr it was not transporting in the way that the work is. I wouldn't have brought this up when you asked me the question, but I, it was not transporting in the way that the book is transporting. I didn't, I didn't like, um, levitate out of the theater, and I... I, I I came in hoping that I would, and I also didn't leave with a deeper understanding of Dave. But that could be because I'd read the book, I've read everything he's written, and I've read everything written about him, right? Yeah. I read the biography, <clears throat> I read all the friends. I mean, I've just, you know, he, uh, as I said, he was out there foraging for me and bringing that stuff back for me and for everybody else within a 30-year um, age or something, hmm. and he bring was, bring back the, um, he, yeah, the, 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 the little the traffic out the traffic out the, the stuff in between. Yeah, he yeah. was he was bringing that stuff back, and he was looking at it in a way that we didn't. And he was explaining it, and um, he said that it, when a writer is is good enough that they're not smarter, but they have the chance to to clench their fists and think really hard and wake the reader up to stuff that she noticed and was aware of all along. And it's what's great about that is that people, all people, many people in the same field will tend to see things the same way. And it's so close to what Proust said he wanted his book to do. He said that he wanted to be an optical instrument through which the reader could read their own lives. Yeah, the prism thing. It yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. But more than that, like if I take Wallace's nonfiction and fiction together, it is the great sort of, uh, and for me until Murakami uh, is the only other president, and Murakami does something very different, um, and he's exploring something uh, in a, a, different. But what Wallace's books did for me even though Lyndon is not about Lyndon Johnson, really, it's the deepest understanding I ever got <laughs> of what it meant to be a Texan at that time. I read the Carol books because of that story. 
Right. I've yeah. read that. Yeah. But I mean, and the Carol books are great. Yeah. Listen, they're great. But what Wallace did and with the, you know, uh, the aide that he invented, the guy who was there, he grabbed onto the myth of Lyndon Johnson, but then also put you in a place of human understanding for Lady Bird and Lyndon and the aide and what it must have felt like. And I, you add that up with little expressionless animals. My and, appearance. What, what's that? My appearance. Yeah, and uh, That's the Letterman story. Yeah, My no, appearance. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you add those to Infinite Jest and then uh, you add those things to Brief Interviews and Oblivion and... Uh, um, and uh, Lobster. Uh, Octet, the depressed person. I, uh, um, the last, last oh, brief interview. Oh, I'm another uh, pioneer. Yeah, Great stuff. And, and the Suffering Child, which I was, just, I was just reading yesterday. Unbelievably good. And then, you know, Consider the Lobster, which I think about the, the Garner story in that book as I've read it 10 times probably, you know. And I've read all versions of uh, Big Red One and, uh, and Consider the Lobster itself, you know. And... Um, the, that that story is funny. I I said to my daughter is taking a seven hour trip today from D.C. back to the camp she's at, and um, she asked me what she should listen to or on the on the ride from D.C. back to where she's going. She's about seven hour drive, and I said, well, this would be a really good time for you to investigate Bob Dylan in a certain way. And I said, maybe check out these couple of records, maybe the first Cheryl Crow record. And then I said, Brownsville Girl is great for a long trip and, too. And isn't then it? I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. great. But if yeah. but you know, Blood on the Tracks is like yeah, a, a great thing to do. Um, and she loves like Casey Musgrave and, and Taylor Swift. So I said, like the first Cheryl Crow album is really worth uh, diving into. And then I said, and you know, you should get a supposedly fun thing <laughs> on audiobook, and you should listen to Cruise Ship, and you should listen to State Fair. And the Michael Joyce piece. Uh, well, the Michael Joyce piece, I could do. Okay. All right. All right. Now, you <laughs> did it to yourself. You one man. Go no, ahead, you just it. did it to yeah. yourself. Because, <laughs> no, I can't. Like, see, because yeah. the subconscious is funny. And you want to admit that some part of you wants to admit that you felt thwarted. Because the Michael Joyce piece is about being the hundredth best in the world. And about not, about knowing that the weapons that those, it's interesting that that's what you picked, man, because that piece is all about the difference between 100 and number 10 weapons, either speed or a forehand or a serve, and about the recognition by Wallace that the gulf between Wallace and Joyce was the same as the gulf between Joyce and those other guys. And I know you see yourself on that continuum. Uh, um, <clears throat> there's a great thing that Uncle Leo is explaining to Jerry Seinfeld why his cousin Jeffrey likes what he asks what his favorite animal is. And uh, Jerry can't guess. says, it's leopard. Do you know why? I can't guess. And he says, he likes the spots. I like that tennis piece. I think it's brilliant. I think it's great about I love tennis. I play tennis. I think it's a brilliant piece about tennis. It's a, the best thing I've ever read about tennis. But I didn't realize that there was a mirror hidden inside those pages that kept showing me my own face. I'll have to go back and check when I'm reading it at home. You'll see it. Listen, you're the. I, I got to say, I have so much fun talking to you. Thank you. you, Thank you for doing this. Uh, Everyone should go read it. And I'm really glad that we got to point to those pieces for people to read. Me too. Because they are um, the Michael Drews piece uh, is, even if you're not a tennis person or a sports person, you understand so much about how Wallace saw the world and about a thing we don't think about that that often, which is just the uh, rigor and discipline it takes to be 
great at anything, even if it's not being genius. By the way, that story is about the gulf between genius. <laughs> it is about the gulf between being a genius no, and a, being no, merely actually, excellent. No, it's actually about what it takes, even to be the hundredth, what it takes to yeah. actually, what, what you turn off on to be. But I, can I make a plug for something? Yeah, plug whatever you want. Okay, so this is for your daughter, but she's already traveling. Um, the reading of Considered a Lobster, I think, is about four hours and 14 minutes, something like that. And it's him reading uh, Big Red Sun. And it's him reading, uh, it's him reading uh, the Tracy Austin piece about tennis. And him reading Considered a Lobster, too. And then him reading about 9-11. He reads them? He reads them. It's a great press. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to be introduced no, to his work. My, no, my text, yeah. to, no, no, the, the, the text to her was... Um, I said do both. I said start with yeah. Consider the Lobster or Supposedly Fun Thing. And then I said if, if, if you start with Consider the Lobster, start with the story Consider the Lobster. But then in the second text I said, you know what? Start with a Supposedly Fun Thing because it's, it's, where to st- it's the beginning exactly. of, of, of all of but that. The nice thing about and that I is- hope she would sneak into the earnestness essay. See, yeah. You can't put someone on the Laner essay because it's, uh, you have to bring a lot of bag. Like, um, it assumes that essay assumes a lot of knowledge, right? But, but I, I think that earnestness... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very important to, to have and that maybe she would hear that too but as for, for people like audible.com if you join you can get a certain number of books for free and that's just four hours of his beautiful voice reading I mean he's a great reader yeah you know the other day I got a thing that maybe audible wants to be one of the sponsors of the show and I mean if this episode doesn't make audible.com want to be a sponsor <laughs> of this fucking show <laughs> I gotta find another place to download books from because honestly audible what the fuck <laughs> alright <laughs> not a bad slogan um Idiocracy, um, Carl's Jr. slogan in the future, fuck you, I'm eating. So maybe you can use something like that with Audible. Great. Uh, the movie Idiocracy? Yeah, the movie Idiocracy. Mike Judge? Mike, amazing, right? Incredible. Yeah. yeah, Mike Judge is a brilliant guy. I should have him on here. Hey, David Lifke, thank you. Can't wait to read the climate change book. People should read, um, although, of course, uh, you end up becoming yourself. I can read backwards, dude. And I read the book. I know the book. <laughs> and uh, they should see the movie. Thanks for listening. If you want to find me, I'm at themomentbk at gmail.com. I'm in production right now. I will read it. I can't guarantee you that I'll respond, though I try to. I try my best. And um, hey, David, I hope I see you soon. Me too. It was great being on, Brian. Thank you. So, um, well, as we were just walking away, uh, Lipsky said, um, oh, you know, I had two classic moments for you. I guess not, not realizing that we picked on these, we actually lived in these moments now, how it feels to be him right now in this moment after the book comes out, after the movie comes out, and him during this time following Wallace. But what are the moments you thought of? Well, the moment which is about the book was one we talked about, which was that <clears throat> people kept saying, you have great material. Like, here's this thing, and you should make it into a biography. And it was like, no. Do you know what I mean? Like, I want you to know what it's like to spend time with the best writer who's written since 1990. And so I kept saying no and kept saying no, and no one would say yes. And then there was Broadway, which is a, a paperback imprint of Random. They had a new uh, a new president who loved that, wasn't, wasn't as committed to doing books kind of in the old way as all the other editors, and said yes. And I thought that was, you know, it was one of those things where you do not want to compromise something. Like, very clear, did not want to publish a thing where I was making assumptions about what he felt like. But just, here is the transcript. So this is a moment where you had to stick to your own exactly, guns, and that, yeah. right? And so that, 
And I'm sure that that was a, that was a similar thing faced by James and Donald and David Cantor, which was we are not going to take that material. And we're, gonna, we're not going to make it into a biopic. We're going to say, spend time with this person, understand what it is to be a thinking, feeling, living, you know, and noticing person, and how that time feels to them. And the other moment uh, was about it's kind of what you're talking about about fiction and nonfiction. Um, it was 1998. And uh, so I just come back and I had been saving money from Rolling Stone just to write my next novel. So my last novel came out in 96, uh, you know, done, done journalism to, to build up a war chest, right? So then I can sit down and, and take my chances with the other people in the fiction section. And so, uh, but I was keeping a small contract with Jan as a way to kind of play it safe, right? And um, so I keep turning stories down. Like I, what you want to do you may notice that uh, the people who write celebrity stories in magazines, have uh, they look healthier and they have bigger smiles than people who do reporting stories. Very easy to do. You go, you talk with someone charming, you say what they're like, you go home. Whereas a reporting story takes a long time. It's six months. The story I won the GLAAD Award for, I won a GLAAD Award uh, right before this, was a year of spending time with at-risk gay and lesbian teenagers. And it was great and exciting to get to see what those lives were like in places like, there's actually a town called Sandy, Utah or Heard County, Tennessee, just saying, okay, it's hard to be there, but here's how they're making these brave choices, right? Um, so I kept saying no, and then Jan said, okay, these people at West Point want you to do a story. And the reason they wanted to do a story was uh, West Point, as you know, is run by a superintendent and commandant, and they were wearing their class Bs, which are kind of dress uniforms, and they were driving down to the Pentagon for a conference of other generals, and they were going down on ND5, and they got to one of those welcome centers that has, like, table service, and they've been worried. One of the things I wanted to talk about was, is America forgetting it has a military? And so they walk in their uniforms. These five generals are taking their hats off, and the hostess comes out, and she gets a big smile. And they're kind of relieved because they're seeing her. And she says, look, before I seat you, gentlemen, I just want to say a warm thank you uh, for all the great work you do on behalf of the Parks Department. And so they came to Rolling Stone, and they said, send a reporter. And so Jan said, okay, you can't turn this one down because it's really close. It's only 50 miles from your apartment, so you have to go. And I didn't want to do it. I wanted to write fiction. And so I got up there, and it's it's a weird thing being a journalist, like a reporter who travels. In the office, you, you have to say the thing, right? But once you're on your own, you, you're on your own recognizance a little bit. So these guys briefed me for like three days, and they would make me up at six in the morning, and they would brief me for eight hours. It seemed like a lot. And so I thought that was, and then as we were walking around, there kept being these, like across the sally ports, there would be these little signs on chains saying, authorized personnel only beyond this point. And so after those three days, that was the way I was not going to have to do the story. So this is the moment. Um, I said, you guys have a great place, and I see why you love it, and I see why it has all this history, and I see why it's vital. But I couldn't do justice to this place that you gentlemen and women love so much just by staying here for a week or two. That wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't be worth anything at all. So the only way I could really do what you guys want is if I came up here, spent four years just like a cadet, did everything the cadets did, all the training, and then I could do that because otherwise what, what, what value would there be in my talking about this? And then I went home because I knew they couldn't say yes to that. And so as someone who's <laughs> like any civilian, I think I was watching The Simpsons uh, with, a, with a shirt that I'd slept in. And I think that there were like potato chip salt and crumbs in, the, in, in your chest hair, which one of the problems you deal with is you get in the second yeah. half of your 30s. And the phone rings and there's this very, I answer hello, and there's this very crisp military voice that says, the answer is yes. And then I had to go back there and join a company. As a, I think they said that I was the, the test case for embedded reporters and go through the four years. There was a, there, the, the men and women there are very attractive. And uh, 
and they have very clean they have very clear rules about what you can do romantically and stuff like that and they were very sensitive about a reporter being in the barracks and stuff like that and so after i think my second summer there the head of a pao the head of the public affairs office said we have to talk about something and you're always very nervous when those people come to you and i said okay let's talk now get it out of the way. And they said, no, no, it has to be private. It has to be somewhere no one can hear us because there was one of those days when their parents around. And so we got into my truck and uh, she said, okay, look, this is important. I need you to listen. There's this word we keep hearing, embedding. I said, no, 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 no. I've been so careful about that. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, but, um, but the, what I think what, what it turned out they were doing was that what she said is we're kind of looking at you because we're thinking in the next, next time there's a military conflict of putting reporters back with combat units, with forward units, and they're seeing how it's going to work with you by being in Company G4 at West Point. And so, that's one of the reasons they then allowed that to happen was because of what you did. All I know is that that's they said that, Pretty yeah. great. Um, but the moment for me, not right away, not writing fiction, was not doing the one or two week story they wanted, but giving Instead, this no, challenge. Of course, going yeah. and living there. And yeah. the book that came out of it was that great book we were talking about. It was great uh, doing, but it was another four year thing. Yeah, incredible. And, and, and I, know that, um, I know that it was worth it for you. I know it was great. Yeah. Um, also, also, one gets in great physical shape, and you also love the army and the people who are in the army in a way that you can't otherwise. Have you thought about writing about? You wrote about them. I know when the, the paperback came out, or then yeah. you yeah, wrote well, about yeah, sort of yeah. where they were. Have you thought about following up and on where they all are now? You know, I, I haven't. But I, I mean, I see them, so it's not you know. So it's like I just get emails, or I go have a beer with them. But one of the when Wallace died, uh, one of the guys who I really love best in the book. He was a really super, uh, who uh, at this point he would have been a captain, um, but he was a he was a super who a cadet at West Point, and he had gone through. He'd done two tours. Second tour was he volunteered for because he you know your unit's there. You want to be yeah. with your unit, and then he'd gotten out and he was going to Stanford Law, and so I was there. My mom was at my house, and then the phone rang and it was uh, it was Sutherland Ryan Sutherland who was at Stanford at his mixer, and he had heard what had happened and he came out right crying oh. and he said that some things had happened in Iraq that he had never talked with me about um, but that he had somehow he, he I had you know he was someone who I would talk about Wallace with when we were at West yeah. Point because he was a heavy reader and so he said somehow he knew it was crazy but that he had always hoped that he would meet Wallace at a reading somewhere and sit down and talk with him about what happened and Wallace would give him the word that would help him understand what that experience meant and he was facing that even though there was a fantasy that fantasy was totally untrue and so we just spent that night on the phone just talking and kind of with damp faces and stuff. That's so beautiful and sad and you just completely encapsulated what Wallace means to so many of us. That's great. All right, thanks, David. Thank you, Brian.